Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. This is Kathy and Mark Delaney's workshop entitled Inspiration and Tears, Loving Our Muslim Neighbours in Dali's Slums. The Delaney family have lived in Muslim slums in Dali for much of the last 20 years, learning to love their Muslim neighbours as best they can. They do this as part of Servants to Asia's Urban Poor, an organisation that works in a number of Asian countries. Crazy time, and we got to be involved in that crazy time of helping these people who really had some big problems happening. Um, all the time that we were there, Mark worked with different NGOs and had different kinds of roles. So while a lot of informal stuff happens to the relationships in the slum, there was also always kind of a more structured work agenda happening. So here was Mark at a launching, a meeting to launch a little advocacy manual which he put together, which draws together a lot of information about the government services that are available for the poor um, to help NGOs and others to actually train people in what are their rights and help them to get them. How do you do that interaction with the government official when they're asking for a bribe, all that kind of stuff. Um, another really good thing that has come out of us living in the slum all those years was that we get to build bridges between people who would never ever have met otherwise. So here are Mark's two sisters from North Coast Country, New South Wales, in our slum home in Delhi, meeting my friend Shida the Widow, um, who again has no literate person in her family and whose two sons, her first son, one son died of AIDS before she even knew what the disease was. And then the next year, another son died of AIDS. So, you know, how on earth would these people have ever met otherwise? So building bridges across massive divides of what is life all about. Um, being there and living in the slum also means that you're there when the big stuff happens. So this is Tom standing on the rubble of where our home used to be. Um, that just about the time that Oscar was born, that slum got demolished. Um, and just the next photo, yeah, those are the trucks, the government supplied trucks for taking away people's possessions to the relocation area for the people who were entitled to land. And I'll tell you a bit more about that whole scene uh, story in a little while, but um, it's one of the big things of, of living in the places that you're there when the little things happen and you're there when the big things happen and you're there as part of people's lives. Um, I think that's it for my so far. Yeah, okay, so that was kind of a very fast introduction to 20 years of life in the slums. Do you have any immediate questions that would help make sense of whatever comes next? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. I was almost going to put in slides of and we did normal things like go on holidays. We have our favourite holiday places in India. So a lot of the time we had. Um, uh, we were with a team of people and we would have a team retreat centre where we could go once a week and have time of worship and prayer and just be by yourself time or be with your friends time. So we always try to have weekly time out and then also regularly go on holidays. So we know the best holiday spots in India. <laughs> yeah. Was religion ever an issue, living in a Muslim community? Ah, uh, yes. 
and now <laughs> it was always an issue because uh, religion is very much a part of life in India. Um, so, oh gosh, it, it was never an issue where we felt insecure or in danger. Um, there were, like, when 9-11 happened, Tom was going to a local Muslim-run school and we thought, we feel perfectly safe about this. They all know that we're not Americans and he's been going to this school before and he'll continue going to this school. Anyway, so, so we never felt unsafe or like people were targeting us. But we also got to see the world from a very different perspective. Um, yeah, and also we were sometimes occasionally kind of helpful because the tension in India is mainly between Hindus and Muslims, and Muslims and Christians are kind of closer brothers, um, near cousins or something. So anyway, the religious scene is very impressive. It's always there. We might move on to Mark, save up your questions, and he's going to uh, talk about a few principles that we've taken out of this. While I put my jacket back on. Hi everybody, I'm Mark. This is a really bizarre place to run a workshop. So we, I wonder if there's a contingency plan to close down. Anyway, we'll. Uh, uh, so, thank you for coming, despite the uh, circumstances. There you go, John. What I want to do uh, now is talk about some principles that we've learned over those 19 years of living in India about working across religious and social divides. Thanks, Andy. Um, so I've got five principles for you, and I, being the person I am, I like doing things in alliteration, so they all start with the letter L. And after it's all gone, we'll turn the whiteboard around and test you and uh, see who can get uh, those five things with the letter L. Um, now, one other thing I thought we could do, Sam is over there making fantastic Indian chai. What I thought, would it be nice if, just as the, as the host of this workshop, if we could shout everybody a cup of chai? Would that be reasonable? Yeah. Now, Sam's heard that and he's, he might be challenged in terms of quantity, but he'll, he'll work on it and hopefully some point over the next Ten minutes, the chai will appear magically in front of you. Is that okay? Cool. Okay. Now, um, so the work, this whole workshop is around loving people across religious and social divides, right? So we've lived for 19 years in Muslim slums, which is a very big religious divide and a very big social divide. And I, I think we've learned some few, a few things. The first thing that I want to share with you um, is that we should go across those religious and social divides as a learner. So the first L word is learner, and Tom's going to write that there. And after all this is over, I've got a, yeah, can you do the pressing? After all this is over, I've got a handout that I can give you uh, that you can take away if you want to. So as a learner. And what I'm, I'm pretty strong on that because what I found in missions recently is we tend to go as the expert, don't we? We go as the Australian, highly trained expert to these situations of need and we do what those poor people need us to do. Don't we? That's kind of why we go. What I'm suggesting is the first thing that we need to change in our attitude as we go across religious and social divides is to go as a learner. To admit I don't know how these things work in that context. We don't know how to wash the dishes even. We had to learn how to wash, wash dishes. We had to learn how to go to the toilet in that way because the toilets didn't look the same had to learn a whole lot of things. So the first thing we learned is to go as a learner. 
Can you pass me that folder, please? And click the button. The second thing is to live as locals live. Now, what I mean there is that often we go into these contexts and we still like living in our own style, in our own apartment block or our own kind of conclave, and then we go out to those poor people or we go out to those Muslims or we go out to those street people or we go out to those whatever. I'm suggesting if we want to work across religious and social divides, a very, very powerful tool is to live as people live. So that's why we lived in that slum. Because we figured the best way that we can learn is to, is to live there. Um, now, many, many people that we see going uh, to India live in what we call a compound or a gated community, a nice high apartment block where you drive in at night and the gate shuts and nobody can get into you. Why is that a problem, do you think, in these contexts? Why, why would that be problematic if we're working with poor Muslims and we live in this big, nice apartment block? Tell me, why is that an issue? Because it shows very, very clearly that we are rich and they are poor. In fact, that's true anyway, regardless of where we live, but it shows that very, uh, yeah, any other reasons. Why is it a problem to live in a gated community and go to the poor people for a couple of hours a day and then come back? Tell me. They wouldn't believe that I can understand that. And that's right, people would say, well, how do you know? You don't live here. How do you know what our issues are? That's right. Somebody else said something? That's a great point. Much more difficult to develop deep relationships because relationships come over hanging out, don't they? And often they don't happen from nine to five. They happen at night. That's right. Great responses. Ralph? It makes almost everything I say irrelevant because they just can't relate to me as a person. That's right. Terrific. You guys are made for this. So, therefore, the sign-up sheet is over there to go. Eliminate. <laughs> okay. Um, well, just one story about that. One time we were living in that slum, and it was late at night. It was about 10 p.m. Kathy and I have gone to bed. Tom is about three years old, so he's sound asleep. And we hear next door this slapping sound, like... And then we hear this crying. And it's very obvious that the woman next door through a very thin wall is being beaten by her husband. Now, if we worked there nine to five, we wouldn't hear that because that happened at 10 or 11 at night. So, very, very distressing situation, but it meant I had to get up out of bed, go next door and say, hey mate, it's obvious what you're doing to your wife. I'm not prepared for that to happen, so either you stop or I go and get your brother, right? And so we could intervene and the, and the violence stopped for a while. Now, the point is, we, we don't see that stuff when we're just going for a period of time. You got me? So, go in as a learner, live as locals, and this stuff can apply in Australia, it can apply anywhere, if we want to work across religious and cultural divides. Third point is, learn the local language. So, L for language. Now, that is certainly relevant overseas. This photo here is us playing soccer on the riverbank through all the stones and rocks and buffalo poo and everything. You see Oscar up the back there, exhausted, the back right. I'm, I'm back left, also exhausted. Um, but to deal with these guys, you're not going to do it in English. It's got to be in Hindi, it's got to be in their language, otherwise you just can't relate. Now that's true also in Australian context. Sometimes you need to learn, maybe not a whole new language, but a, a way of speaking. Now why is it a problem, do you think, if we go into that context and speak English? Why is that a problem? Anyone? They, well, they just don't understand. 
It's the language of, that's a great comment, well done, it's the language of the elite, it's the language of the rich people, of the upper class, of the upper castes, and so it just sets you apart. And as soon as we open our mouth and speak Hindi, it's, wow, the white person speaks Hindi, isn't that great? And we talk about all sorts of stuff, including how, how bad our soccer skills. Okay, third one was language. The fourth one, L for long term. Now this is also true wherever we're working across religious and cultural divides, the longer we can do it, the better. Now this is why I'm quite distressed about the, the, the prevalence of short-term mission these days. We go out from our church, don't we, we say, in two weeks, I'm going to do some stuff. I'm going to build stuff, and I'm going to run church services, and I'm going to help people, and it's going to be great, and then I'll come back after two weeks having done my job. What do you think of that? Is that, is that feasible or not? Tell me. It has a place, terrific. That short-term stuff has a place. Exactly, that's a great comment. Short-terms are fantastic for changing who? Me. That's right, not so much for changing them, but for changing me. And if they do that job, they have a wonderful place, you're right. But they don't, they're not great at bringing about change over there. Yeah. That's a great comment. If we're meant to be family, your family doesn't just turn up for a couple of weeks and then go again. If you're family, you're around, aren't you? So when we went to India to start with, we, we really didn't know whether we as white, rich people had a place in this context at all. So we were open to our Indian colleagues saying, just go home, we're sick of the whole colonial thing, just rack off. We were open to that, really. But when we talked to our Indian colleagues, they said, if you're willing to learn the language, and you're willing to stay for a long time, meaning more than three years, you're welcome to stay. So we, thought, we took that very seriously. Now it's interesting, isn't it? How long did Jesus learn and live and learn things before he started work? How long? About 30 years. How long did he train the disciples before they went out and did their thing? Three years. So I think that three year figure is pretty important. And as a ballpark figure, I'd say do not go across cultures, across religious divides and expect to bring change in anything less than three years. Now I know that's scary for the younger generation because three years sounds like a long time, doesn't it? Yeah, a long time. A year sounds like a long time. But I think that's the harsh reality of working across religious and social divides. Here comes that shy. Thanks Sam, appreciate that. Okay, four L's. Fifth L, yeah. Fifth L. Love. I guess our main point today, and then we're going to see this in the stories that you're going to break up into groups and talk about, is what love looks like depends on the context. What we think is loving may not be the most loving thing to do in a context that we don't understand. You with me? So, for example, one of our uh, German friends who came to work with us, she came into our Muslim neighbourhood and she says, basically, the most loving thing we can do is convince these Muslim women that they do not have to cover their heads, that they are free and they are equal and they should not cover their heads. It wasn't quite as strident as that, but it was like that. Right? Sorry? So that was in a Muslim, in a Muslim context. Now, in her framework from Germany, having been in India for a couple of months, that is the most loving thing to do. But having been there for a number of years, we learned that's not the most loving thing to do because if that young woman uncovers her head, she's going to be beaten by her father tonight. She's going to be excluded by her brothers and her whole religious community 
this week and it's major, major problems for them. So you see my point? We might think we know what's most loving, but we don't until we go in, we learn, we live as locals, we learn the language, we're there for a long time, then we are in a position to know what is the most loving thing to do. And I'm sure our, uh, our Indigenous brothers and sisters would say similar things. We're sick of people coming in as the experts, telling us what to do, and they do not know the context. Okay, there's our five L's. We're going to turn it around. We're going to see how you go. Flip it around. All right, first L was what? Learner. Go as a learner rather than, rather than the expert. Second one. Live as locals rather than rather than visitors and rather than in the big com the big gated compound. Yeah, live with local people. Okay, the third one. Language. language. Learn the language rather than just assume that everybody will operate in your language. Great. Fourth one was long term. Stay long term. And I know for the younger generation that is a hard message. But that's the unfortunate reality when we're working across religious and social divides, it takes a long time. And I would say at least three years. And the fifth L, love. And what was my point about love? You need to learn what love is. What does love look like in this context? Yeah. And Jesus was an absolute expert at that. For every person he knew, his response was different according to the context. So learn, live, learn the language, and then we are in a position to know what he's loving. Terrific. I will ha uh, hand back over to Kathy, to Tom. Okay, so now we're going to tell you a few stories from our lives, and then uh, we've got questions for you to answer about those situations. Thank you. Well, uh, salamu alaikum, everybody. That's peace, peace be with you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, so in the next section of this um, workshop, I guess, uh, we're going to share some stories, but it's not going to be kind of a monologue. It's more like uh, a discussion. Well, I think we all find, uh, you know, that the ideal of loving God and loving our neighbour, it's a fantastic ideal, but working it out in practice can actually be quite difficult. And like Mark was saying, it can mean different things in different contexts. So... Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep, great. So I guess the, the story that I would like to share was quite a um, dominant feature of our lives in India was requests for money. Now, could somebody, could anybody please put their hands up if you've ever been requested for money by a non-family member? Okay, great. So I see that it, this is not at all unique to India, so I think uh, hopefully we can have a good discussion around this because um, it, it is quite a big issue. I think in India it was especially so because um, even though we're not very rich by Australian standards, we are very rich by Indian standards. And so having all these uh, financial resources and believing in equality, of course we want to help people, of course we want to spread our wealth around. Um, but on the other hand, we know that um, money is not the, the key to solving the world's problems. Um, money is only a small part of that. And furthermore, we don't want to, uh, again, go in kind of feeling like here we are with all our bags of money, we can give out some money and solve, solve the problems. Uh, we don't want to create that dependency. I'm sure if you guys have grappled with these dilemmas of when to give money and when not to, you will have encountered the same thing as when when does giving money create an unequal power dynamic? When is, when is the right thing to do and when not? So 
I guess um, specifically in India, um, can I have a show of hands for people who've been in India for a while or like even visited? Yeah, yeah, great. Some people, great. Um, so um, for those of you who know something of Indian culture, you'll know that it's um, quite focused or festivals and um, weddings and funerals, they're all quite a large part of Indian culture, much more so than Australia in my experience. So. Uh, celebrating festivals and mourning someone's passing, celebrating marriages, they're all a really big part of the culture and they all require spending a lot of money. Now, there's a lot to celebrate about this culture which is so, um, I guess it, it, it's kind of, it reflects God's kingdom in terms of its, its hospitality, throwing banquets for lots of people, inviting friends and strangers, relatives, inviting lots of people to share in feasts. But there's also some things to grapple with here because for many people, one of the biggest stresses in their lives was the question of how am I going to put on a feast for my daughter's wedding? How am I going to put on a feast for my sister's wedding? Uh, just because when you're, when you're struggling to survive day to day, the idea of saving up or borrowing enough money to put on a big celebration is really stressful. Um, so that was kind of where we came in was a lot of people, once they had gotten to know us a little bit, or even before that, thought, look, these guys are white, they must be rich. And to be honest, we are by Indian standards, so surely we can ask them for some money and they'll give it to us. Now, over the years, we had truckloads of requests for money and <laughs> we said yes to a lot, we said no to a lot. Um, so I guess the, the question that I'd like to leave you guys to grapple with is, imagine that you're living in India uh, someone comes up to you, you know them kind of somewhat, they say, can I please have $200 to you know, help put on a feast for my daughter's wedding? Now, uh, <laughs> the kind of dimensions or the complications I'd like to add for you is, on the one hand, you don't want to disappoint this person, you're kind of trying to build a friendship with them, you feel like if you say no, you'll be, uh, maybe they'll, they'll take that kind of uh, a bit offensively. Um, but, and also you, you feel like, okay, I've got all this money, I want to do something good with it. But on the other hand, their daughter is only 18 years old um, and you feel like actually that's probably a bit too young to get married. She doesn't even know the person that she's um, betrothed to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 19, I don't think I'm ready for marriage at all. <laughs> so, so, so you've got some qualms, you've got some qualms about uh, giving money to this and you feel like, oh, well actually this will just be a big feast, it's just kind of trying to waste a lot of money, do I really want to put my money in this? So um, what we'd like to do would be, if you could get into groups of, oh sorry, sorry, we'll do that. Okay, so just hold that story or that, that situation in mind of, what, what, would, what would you do and what do you think would be the loving thing to do? Is it the loving thing to give this money? Is it the loving thing to say, no, sorry, I don't want to give you this money? And how would you go about that either way? So just have a think about that dilemma. And uh, also, yeah. Yeah, so um, that, that was one kind of story or situation. Oscar and Kathy will also be sharing their stories and situations. After that, we'll get you into little groups and we can discuss one situation. Yeah. Great. And now my illustrious Hi, I've got a second story today. Uh, so this is me in the photo here. And there's Tom and Mark. It's not a very good quality photo, but it's the best I could find. The person who I'll be talking mainly about here is this girl, her name's Nilofa. 
Uh, she comes from a family of six other kids. She was the oldest uh, child there. So in Indian culture, as the oldest child, you have quite a large responsibility to all your other kids and siblings. So she would often have a few of her younger brothers and sisters in tow with her, as she does here. She's got uh, two other uh, of her brothers and sisters there. So her dad was a manual labourer, quite a common job in India, uh, but also quite a poorly paid one. So uh, not only did they not earn that much money, he was also an alcoholic. So um, as in Australia, that creates all sorts of problems. So a lot of their money was going into uh, him buying drinks. So where we came into all this was that she wasn't actually getting very much food at home. So she would, most days, come to our house and uh, just ask something to eat. So, uh, especially at the beginning, we almost always gave her something to eat because we thought uh, that's the loving thing to do in that situation. Uh, we can't really deny her this growing child some food. So that's largely what we did. Uh, we also got to know her a little better, uh, but I personally at least never felt like I knew her that well and never really felt like uh, friends with her. So I suppose the question is when uh, that didn't uh, turn out how we hoped really, she uh, started coming more and more frequently, uh, a couple of times a day, and we were starting to get a little bit sick of that really, uh, because we had other things that we wanted to do too, other people we wanted to relate with. So when you do get into small groups, you'll just be talking about, uh, say, she's come to your house in India for the third time today, and she's uh, asking for something to eat. She comes into your house, she's talking uh, about whatever. She uh, quite liked talking, I think, just because she didn't really have anyone else who listened to her very well. So the question is, what should you do? What's the loving thing? Do you... Uh, regardless of how many times she comes today, give her something to eat, listen to her uh, caringly. Do you maybe push a limit on only, uh, say, two or three times a day you can come to our house uh, because we don't have infinite time? Uh, so what would you do in that situation? And now I believe we have Kathy to give us our first story. Okay, so Barapur slum relocation. Back in October 2001, it was like just after 9-11 uh, happened. So that happened in September, and then this happened in October, and then in November, Oscar was born. It was a busy time of life. So in that month, a notice went up in the slum where we used to live. We had moved just outside of the slum because I was so sick in pregnancy. Um, anyway, it's a whole other story. So we were living just nearby and Mark was going over visiting regularly and he saw this notice on the public toilet saying he'll be rehabilitated in five days' time. That is government speak for demolish your houses, pack up your goods because we're taking you 27 kilometres away to a place with low-lying flooding land which is not yet developed and no public transport and no schools. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> So also at the same time we had new team members who were about to arrive to join our team and the little local church that we attended was going through an acrimonious split. So we had a few things going on um, and then suddenly this notice went up saying 
our slum community where we had become really close friends with people for the previous two and a half years that were about to be forcibly removed. Um, so the people who had been living there for long enough and had paperwork to prove it would be entitled to a tiny plot of land, either three by four metres or three by six metres, depending on how long they had been living there. And all the plots of land were low-lying, undeveloped land 27 kilometres away on the far northern outskirts of Delhi. So, what would we do, heavens? Like, yeah. Okay, so that's the brief scenario for you to think about what on earth would you do in that kind of scene. Okay, so now we want to, you want to organise people. So, if we can split up into groups of about four or five people, so that's three different stories. So, in your group, I'd like you to first decide quickly within a half a minute or a minute, which story would you like to process and talk about a bit? So, the story of Milofa coming repeatedly asking for food, the story of families forever asking us for money for weddings and other things, or the story of our slum is about to be demolished, what do we do? So choose one of those stories and talk about, just brainstorm some ideas. What do you think would be a loving response? What are some ideas of things that you could try in that situation? So are you happy to move into the small groups where you are, or do you want us to give you a number? <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Small groups, maximum five. Okay. Okay, so you've got about seven or eight minutes to talk about that and then we'll collect some ideas. So choose one story and think about what would be the loving thing to do in that situation. You've got till quarter two. So we're going to hear back uh, from you guys about what you thought was the most loving response. <coughs> we're going to do it one story at a time. After we hear from you, then we're going to hear what we actually did in reality and whether we thought whether that was a, a reasonable response or not, okay? So since Tom started, we'll start with the story of, uh, did Tom start? Yeah, with the wedding money, right? So there was one group that talked about whether to give money for the wedding. So which group was that? That was your group? Great. So shall I pass the microphone over to you? Would that be a good thing to do? So we didn't come to a particularly concrete conclusion, we were just discussing it, but we were saying, um, I guess for us, you would really need to understand the culture um, that you're actually in, because of course there's different cultural things that are around, and we were saying that um, you know, it could be quite a shameful thing not actually being able to afford to put on a proper wedding, um, that people would be judging your family and that kind of thing, um, and that potentially people end up going into a lot of debt to pay for a wedding. So potentially if we um, were able to lend money but without the kind of interest that they might have if they're borrowing it from somewhere else. Terrific. That could be good. Right. Well, thank you very much. So the, you said a couple of things. You said one is it's, it's difficult to know because we don't know the, the context and the culture. And that's great. It's just what we were talking about before, wasn't it? Um, but you did say it could be a shameful thing if there's not enough money to put on this wedding. And, um, and shame in that culture is, is a much bigger deal than our culture. And you also said... it. If there was a lot of debt involved, then that could burden the family for a long time, couldn't it? For maybe for a whole generation or more. And so if you could alleviate that debt a bit, that might be a great thing to do. And you talked about the possibility of rather than giving money, lending money. Is that right? Is that about what you said? Terrific. Let's give them a round of applause. That's uh, well done. Thank you very much. And now uh, I'd like to hear from Tom about what actually happened. Thanks. 
Um, yeah, well, like you, we didn't really uh, work it out either. <laughs> Still working on that one. Um, and uh, so I guess the, uh, yeah, really, really good points and um, absolutely you're right. It is a very much uh, kind of a question of shame and honour. Um, and yeah, those, even though from, from our Australian culture, we might not appreciate um, these questions of family honour and stuff. It's a very, very significant part of thinking culture. Um, I guess the three kind of, like, even though I don't feel like we've got a hard and fast solution of when to give money and when not to, maybe three principles, uh, I'll leave them with you. See, I'm, I'm not sure how applicable they are to the Australian context or not. Hopefully they are somewhat. Um, one thing was to actually ask for advice from our Indian friends because however long, you know, even though Austin and I were born in India, we've been brought up there, um, but we're still not complete insiders on the culture, even though these guys have lived there for 20 years, we're, we're never going to be the complete insiders, so it's a good idea to ask for advice from people who do know the culture from the inside um, about, you know, is this a legitimate thing that we should be giving money to or not? So if you've got good friends who you can ask for advice for, that's, that's a good idea. Um, the second thing was to say, um, sometimes uh, giving money isn't going to um, solve the problem. You know, many times we did give money to um, weddings, but then later the marriages would collapse or there'd um, you know, be a lot of domestic violence involved. So often things don't work out. Um, but I guess it's just to say that even though giving money um, doesn't necessarily solve problems, it is actually quite a good exercise for us ourselves, I think. So as long as we come to that clearly that we're giving money and it's partially to try to help something out there, some, somebody else, but it's also partially ourself, for ourselves that um, you know, Jesus says you can't worship God and money. So it's really important that we try to stay detached enough from our money to be able to give generously for our own sake. Um, yeah, and thirdly, just um, the idea that e even though, um, also, rather than, like, one of the dangers of giving money is if it becomes, uh, like, a, a barrier in the relationship, because often the relationship's really quite, quite the important thing. Um, and I think a way that we can overcome that is if we're also willing to ask for generosity from other people. Now, in some ways, that's even harder than giving generosity, I find at least, because when you're giving generosity, you have all these fuzzy feelings and you feel like you know, you're being responsible and good for the world and so forth. But asking for generosity is often a humbling experience um, and it feels like, oh, you know, am I just a scrounger living off other people's uh, generosity or, yeah, whatever. But I think and there, there needs to be that mutuality. You need to be willing to ask for help from other people. And I think gradually we did learn that in India that, you know, if, we're, if we've run out of something, we can actually ask our neighbours for, you know, can you borrow some eggs or whatever. Uh, or borrow, yeah. Um, and, and that mutuality is actually respected. And Indian culture is, you know, really about generosity and hospitality. And if you're willing to humble yourself enough to accept hospitality and accept generosity from other people, then that's uh, really important for the relationship. Yeah, so my three principles, I guess, um, ask, ask other people for advice, especially people who know more than you about the context. Um, two, be willing to give generously, um, if not to solve a problem for your own sake. And thirdly, um, also be willing to ask for uh, generosity from other people. Yeah.
You know, when we, um, Tom and Oscar were both born in India, and for the first 10 years, I think, of parenting in India, I thought, we'll just endure this silliness that we're doing, and then we'll get back to Australia and to normality and normal schools and all of that. And then after a while, I looked at Tom and Austin and I thought, they're doing pretty well, actually. So we might just stick around and continue the, the parenting journey there. So, um, yeah, good one, Tom. Thank you. So the second story that uh, Oscar talked about of our friend, well, kind of friend, Lilopa, uh, coming up for lunch most days of the week. Um, you guys over there, I asked you specifically, would you lend your mind to that? Uh, so would you, do you have something to tell us? Um, so we actually talked about all three issues and didn't get very far, but this particular one we talked about, um, I guess, the importance of coming back at mealtime so that that's kind of a, a relational thing where we're doing it together and that kind of thing. Um, that's probably as far as we got on that one. It's obviously a trick question. Yeah. We thought, we thought it was a bit of a trick question and, and, um, and we thought that the right answer besides Jesus and God was the five L's. And um, so that was our answer to the problem. Trick question. I'm sure trick us for Well, you've, you've all passed so far by saying we don't know because we weren't there. So that's, a, that's a great answer. Um, so we'll get Oscar to tell to tell you what we did do or try to do. Okay, so uh, as far as I recall, a few years ago now, but we didn't really come up with a, a system. We, uh, I think, at least took each one as a came. So mostly, uh, we just asked the four of us uh, if any uh, of us were willing to. Uh, put away what we were doing and to spend some quality time with Nilofa. And sometimes the answer was one of us was ready to do that and sometimes none of us were. So uh, we just focused on the basis of if we were, had the time and the energy and the inclination to do that. And if we did it, then we thought we can do it well, we can do it lovingly. Uh, so we invited her in. And if uh, none of us had that time and energy, then uh, we would either uh, I think just tell her to go away, probably. Uh, or just... Yeah, yeah, lovingly, of course. Or just uh, sometimes we thought, well, we can't really deny her something to eat because that's something we all need uh, and need immediately. So sometimes we just give her something to eat, let's say, sorry, we don't really have time to talk with you at the moment. So... Uh, Go away. <laughs> Another thing we did do was that um, there were fears around how her dad was going to be treating her and the next elder sister, and because she was constantly not having enough to eat and wanted to finish school. We actually arranged for her and her sister to go to a hostel for destitute children where she would, they would get food, education, medical care and be able to visit their family on holidays and so forth, just on the other side of Delhi. Um, and the, her mother was really for it. Yes, yes, take our children. Anyway, after they lied to us about several things, eventually we got the girls admitted there and spent a bit of money and time and effort doing it and then the mother went and forcibly removed them in less than a week and brought them back home. So, goodness knows. What went wrong? We really tried. 
Yeah, so I think uh, that was one of the more challenging relationships we had in India. It wasn't always very smooth going. We had some rocky patches there with her and her family, but I suppose we just tried as best we could to both give her some food and listen to her uh, lovingly where we could. Oh, very nice. So um, I like what Oscar had to say that it, it, it's often not easy and it's often not clear what to do and what not to do. But that was a good principle he brought out of if we can do this thing lovingly and in the right spirit, then it's fine. But if we're going to do it out of a, a grumpiness, then it's probably not a great idea. And, uh, and another thing he brought out is uh, we had a family conference every time she'd come. Has anyone got energy for this girl or not? We've had so many family conferences over the years about all sorts of stuff. But it was great, you know, it's a really good way to do family, to talk about what are we going to do in this situation and, uh, and who's got energy and who hasn't. It's been really good for us as a family. Okay. Oh, yes. Now, three of your groups talked about the uh, relocation. So we'll hear from all of you. So uh, you guys, we're doing that? Yep. I'm not sure whether the mic's going to... Um, had a few ideas about things that uh, that needed to be done. Uh, first of all, to kind of do a bit of research, even though there wasn't much time involved, find out uh, what had happened before in these kinds of situations where slums had been demolished. Um, was there any opportunity for, to um, to object to what was happening? Uh, with the government or whoever was involved um, and uh, that kind of, I'll also find out from the people um, who was likely to go to this new development, who was just going to have to be dispersed and find somewhere else to go, uh, which which of the people that we were, we've been working with were going to be going to the new place, all those kind of things, gather information about that that would help make a decision. I would also find out who, out of those that were going to be moved, might be the most needy that um, might be able to uh, focus more help with um, in terms of that move. Oh, yeah, that this might be an opportunity for, for whether it was short-term mission, um, if we could um, get people who might come and help with rebuilding or things like that that, that had to happen. In that Yes. Yeah, sure. Great. Okay, so you guys had a whole bunch of ideas. One of your main ones, it sounds like, is you'd have to learn more about the situation, find out what you, what happened in these situations before, who's going to move to this place anyway, who are the most needy people, are there skills there, um, all sorts of great ideas, excellent. And maybe even short-term mission to help in that. Excellent. Uh, which was, the, there were two other groups that talked about yours was one. Um, within the new 
um, community that was going to be developed. Um, I think supporting the families um, that didn't have paperwork and perhaps um, within a short time frame trying to help those families gain the paperwork they needed so that there were more families able to hopefully get the plots of land and, and move. Um, uh, oh, um, within the communities, setting up meetings so that um, families could reconnect within the community and find out where each other were living and um, sort of set up their, um, their community ties and networks again. Um, what else? That was about it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. So you, you talked about um, the importance of going with people as, as that move happened to maintain relationships talked about the importance of helping people who didn't have paperwork to access the new land to get that paperwork. And you talked about in the new place, uh, uh, organising meetings so that people could, could rebuild their, their networks, their relational networks, because often those networks are destroyed in the, in the move. Fantastic, great. And uh, we'll hear from the last group and then we'll have a round of applause for all of those groups. <laughs> so uh, where's our last group that talked about? You guys. Uh, we were nowhere near as specific as the other two groups, but, but basically we were just talking about learning from the locals as to what do you normally do in this situation, what's happened, uh, and just is there anything that we could do in our, as who we are, is there anything that we could do that would help? Uh, and Miriam was very definite that she would go with them, so that's what we were all doing. <laughs> Okay, so um, you, you're saying it's, it's difficult to say, but the, the key thing is to learn from people, from those people uh, and about situations like that in the past. Very important to go, Miriam said, this is Miriam, Miriam said, go with people. When they got shifted, go with them. Um, okay, terrific. So look, what I'm really happy about in all of that is all of you are saying, we would need to know more. You know, we need to learn more. And that's great because many Australians, I, I'm pretty sure, would say, you need to do A, B and C, and it's obvious. But maybe you've, you, you knew this coming into today, but one of the main principles from today is we need to go in humbly and learn about situations before assuming we know what to do across religious and social divides. So Kath is going to tell us what actually happened. What actually happened is I stayed home and had a baby <laughs> and mastered everything else. No, so the research was a really important thing because we didn't know too much about land rights and relocations at that stage, but Mark found out really quickly a lot of stuff and he ended up with lists and lists of the most useful contacts in various government departments and how these things happen and so forth. Um, the local people had access to a lawyer who was going to charge quite a lot of money and then Mark, through a contact, we found a local lawyers collective which normally acted on cases of sex abuse and women's rights, HIV, like other stuff. But they were willing, so basically they were there as a social justice kind of lawyers co-op and they were willing to take this case on for free. So they took on our case. And so basically Mark ended up running a whole lot of community meetings where he called together hundreds of people and speak to them in Hindi about, so what do you want to do? Do you want to fight against this relocation order? Or do you want to move? Do you want to get legal land? What do you want? What are you going to ask for? What are your demands in court? And they all said, we're willing to move, but we can't move in five days. Our kids are in the middle of exams, it's Ramzan, Eid is coming up, then it'll be winter. You know, what are they thinking? Are they trying to kill us? So, um, so they went to court, they had many community meetings, 
Mark acted as a kind of a bridge, a translator between this group of lawyers and the people, because the lawyers and the court system all operates in English and in a similar legalese jargon as they would here. So Mark actually is trained as a lawyer, so he would go and sit in on the court cases, hear all the proceedings, talk with the lawyers about what was going to happen next, and then sort of translate it all into simple Hindi and run community meetings with the people about, okay, so this is what happened at the court case today. What do we want to do next? How are we going to run this thing? Um, so there was a lot of hard work, a lot of self-giving, hard work and difficult moments in the whole thing. Um, yeah, uh, so it meant a whole list. So the government had a list of all the people who they thought were entitled to land, but that list was kept behind closed doors and the people were all in a panic about was my name on the list or not? So we actually got the right to view the list and to... all. Uh, yeah, so then people in the community made a, a list of everyone and all their ration card details and all their details. So this massive paper list, I think we still had the papers until recently, of 900 families and all their details so that then people could go and physically check that against the government list. And so maybe about how many families? Half a dozen families who weren't on the list we found that should have been on the list and got a plot of land that we'd never have otherwise. So it was, it was a lot of hard work and a lot of difficult moments. So then what, what came out of that was that the relocation did happen. So the people still had to move, but they had more time. They ended up moving three months later in horrible weather like this in the middle of January. <laughs> but at least they had time to dismantle their buildings slowly and save their bricks and their building materials or whatever. They could transport their stuff. It wasn't just bulldozed. So it was done with no violence and in an orderly manner after they'd had enough time to prepare for it. And there was improved infrastructure at Bolsua at the relocation area. Um, they actually fought in court and got the, got the school constructed and got bus services put on. Um, so there was a whole lot of success. So they still had to move and it was still pretty horrid for five years, but there was basic stuff there. Um, so more people got land than would have. And there was just deep friendships that were formed going through such a massive and traumatic thing together. So particularly with one guy, Kalu, who we had known a little bit beforehand. He was one of the people in the community, like you said, look for the community leaders. He was, they needed five people to actually put their name as the plaintiffs on the court order for taking the whole thing to court. So he was the one of the people who put his hand up and said, oh, I'll have my name on that thing, take this to court. But he, and he had people coming to his, his little hut day and night saying, I haven't given my details yet, here's my ration card, here's my photo, you know, my photocopy, put me on the list. They had people coming day and night, and then people started to abuse him, saying, hang on a minute, he must be being paid to do this. You're the one who, get, who got this thing demolished, this demolition thing up in the first place. All this anyway, so he came to us in tears, saying, I've had enough, I can't go on. I'm doing all this out of my, you know, commitment to the community, and they're abusing me. And, um, and then I had this talk, discussion about, hey, isn't that kind of like what Jesus went through? Um, anyway, so he became a very dear friend and actually decided to follow Jesus through this whole process and through some other things. Anyway, so lots of stuff came out of it, but it was a lot of hard work. It's probably the same. So, well done, everybody. Uh, I think you did re a really good job. And... Uh, I, I trust that when you do, and I'm sure that you will at some point in your lives, go across cultural and even religious uh, divides to work with people who are marginalised, um, that will hold those key principles pretty dear to us, to go in as a humble learner, 
to go and uh, live as a local lives to, what was the third one? <laughs> Learn the language and go long term and the meaning of love, we have to learn what the meaning of love is in those contexts before assuming that, uh, that it happens. Fantastic. So, to are there any questions that you want to ask about any of that at this point? Yeah. So I've got two questions. They're quite raw questions. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So, first question is, how did you feel, as you feel as a mother, taking... Because I'm a nurse and I've been to India and I've seen those slums. So, how did you feel having your young children in situations like that? Yes. Okay, so the question is, how did we feel as parents having young children in a situation that's pretty unsanitary and dangerous physically? Um, I remember soul-searching over this when Tom was born and realising that actually my biggest fear was what people would think of me, not actually what would actually happen. So we, we took a whole lot of sensible precautions in terms of we always had filtered water and we had all these vaccinations. So we did the basic precautions that you could and within our own house things were pretty safe and we accessed good medical care. Um, that was helped, Mark actually worked for a medical NGO for all those years, so we had a lot of doctors in our phone list and it was very easy to phone. So the day there was a riot and there was tear gas landing in our courtyard, Mark just gets on the, goes inside, gets on the phone to Sarah. Uh, Sarah, there's tear gas moving in our courtyard. Uh, I think I'll be okay, but how is Tom's eyes going to be through this? You know, and she said, you know, so she, we got advice instant over the phone. It was fantastic. Um, so, uh, and being in Delhi is very different from being in a lot of other more isolated places, so we always had access to medical care. And just the real basic things of cooking your own food and filtering your drinking water. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so when Tom was born, um, I, I, I realised I was more worried about what other people think and that actually what was most important to me as a parent would be, be that he would grow up to first seek the kingdom of God and if he never wore Nikes or never, you know, <laughs> went to that kind of doctor or whatever, like that, that, I guess I just thought about what was most important in parenting. And so we always provided what was good and decent food and medical care, but never the standard of excellence that we really all expect in the West. And my other question is, in hindsight, mm. so now you have two sons who straddle two culture, mm. cultures, and uh, they are uh, intrinsically, India is actually in their mm. bones, really. Mm. And um, in hindsight, is, is you probably never thought that when you were 20-year-old, that, that this repercussion is that... Um, Heritage yeah. that you've actually built, yeah. and and I see that as something that when we're young and you know we're off, we're going off and doing that, we don't see the, the huge picture that sort of yeah. God has or behind that. Yeah. And um, yeah. Um, I think, well, thanks for saying that. That's um, yeah, uh, we're incredibly um, proud of how the, how the boys have turned out you know we, we're really chuffed as parents <laughs> um i you know we we all have a, a family heritage don't we we all grow up with with cultural uh, baggage i call it and kath and i grew up in very normal middle class families you know quite conservative uh, probably racist families and so that was our cultural heritage that we've tried to 
kind of sever uh, to a degree. You know, we still love our parents, but try to sever some of that cultural stuff as we went off and saw the kingdom of God. And so we, we kind of like to think that the boys haven't got as much baggies that they need to take along as they start their journey in life. So what that means is that they're, they're both kind of pushing the boundaries for us now. You know, and, and they're starting to say, well, you know, mum and dad are still pretty conservative and, you know, probably we should be doing this and they're only doing this, you know. And so when we're looking for somewhere to stay in Brisbane, you know, Tom, Tom's saying, well, maybe we can all go and stay in the Catholic workhouse with Andy and that, that'll be fine. And, and, and Kath and I are still, you know, there's, oh, no, that'll be a bit too scary and, and whatever. So what I'm, what I'm saying is, that, you know, it, it's great to watch them as they haven't got as much baggage, I hope, as we had, as they, they kind of forge their journey in life. And that, that's a lovely thing. Thank you. And, and it, yeah. understand your question if you can't go and live like that and you are only going for a year or two and you haven't got those options what are some ways that we can still integrate into that community better is that your question yeah yeah, yeah. to inform the work yeah that's that's a great question um i i just point to one of the things that uh, kath said is that oh no tom said that there's, there's always local people around, no matter where you live, what you do, there's always local people that know the situation better than you do. So one key thing is, regardless of where you live, ask locals. You know, if you think, oh, I'm going to go and do a safe water project there, go and ask the locals, either there or outside there, what, what do you think about this? Because they've got so much wisdom that we don't have. So one thing would just be to, even if you can't live there yourself, ask local people, and I suppose, secondly, it would be, even if you can't live in that place, you can befriend some of those folk. You know, so you can have them back to your place for dinner. You can go, even if you go there every day and have a cup of tea with them every day. You will get to know them, even though you, you don't live there. Does that make sense? So that's two things, is to ask locals, wider locals, and befriend those folk who you're trying to reach first, before you do any program. Does that sound reasonable? Right. In a lot of those kind of cultures, you end up with um, house servants or drivers or whatever. Go visit them when it's their festival day or whatever. Go make some excuse to actually see where they live and be a part of their lives in that way. It's, it's kind of, that's like you're in, but most people never take. Yeah, right. Um, most of us here... Most of us are not um, in a cross-cultural situation. Most of us are, are the majority culture and in positions of power. And the main places we come across people who are very different to us are as clients and we are service providers. 
how would you guys cope with these principles of interaction if you were the social worker or if you were the, the Centrelink worker or the, and, you, and you're dealing with a Syrian Muslim refugee? Yeah, that's a good question. We're in the majority, we're in the majority, we have people we're working with on the margins. How would we work this out as a social worker in this context? Yeah, I think some of these principles still still um, uh, apply, don't they? Some of them can. You can still be humble, no matter, even if you're in a, prince, uh, a position of power, you can still be humble, you can still ask questions, you can still learn from the person about their situation, you can even learn a little bit of their language. You can actually visit them where they are. So some of these principles, I think, go across the board. And it's about being, just being a nice person, really, isn't it, at the end of the day? Being a nice person rather than an arrogant git who thinks they know everything. Um, yeah, uh, Rachel B, who works with servants in the UK, her professional job is as a social worker, uh, working with um, refugees and asylum seekers, but I, as I understand it, she also lives in a household full of refugees and asylum seekers, so it is her home. I don't know quite how she manages that, but she's a busy woman. Now, they're, they're great questions. Uh, we've really enjoyed the, the workshop. Is it okay if we show you a five-minute video to conclude? And this is a little bit of unabashed uh, advertising, I guess. Um, so we, we have uh, worked with a group called Servants for 20 years, and we love Servants. We love what it's on about. It's on about living with the poor, Ralph is the Australian coordinator for servants, and this is Ralph, and he has some stuff over there about servants. He's in the, the main kind of foyer area down there. You'll find him under a piece of corrugated iron in a kind of a make-do kind of sitting on a piece of black plastic. He would love to talk to you. We would love to talk to you. We're around all weekend. If you just want to have a come and have a chat about anything at all, we haven't got anything else to do this weekend. We're very happy to have a chat and have a chat. And um, if you would like to, well, Kath will say more about this, so we'll show you this thing. Okay, I'll say this first. Uh, in July and August, I'm running an internship to India for four weeks. Uh, so we're going to go and visit some of those places that you saw. And it's this thing, it's called Reimagine. Ralph's got some brochures about it there. I'm going to be running it, and it's going to be uh, probably in Kolkata. And we're going to do a briefing for about three or four days about how to be in this culture. We're going to live with a family for about three weeks in a slum as learners, not trying to do anything or build anything, but just learning. And then we're going to do a debrief of the whole thing for another three or four days, all in a month. Um, so we've got a number of North American folk who have applied for that. If uh, you or anybody you know would be interested in that, come and talk to me or to Ralph. Or to Kathy, or the boys. <laughs> if you can't do the trip, read the book. <laughs> anyway, so there's lots more resources available if you want to talk more about the service, but uh, we'll try seeing the movie. Can you work the... Just turn the volume up. Migration has taken place. People moving from rural villages to urban centers. For the first time in history, the majority of the world's population lives in cities. Millions of people move into cities each year in search of a better life, but not everyone finds what they're looking for. We live in the slums with our friends and neighbors, experiencing life together. 
I'm not delivering programs to people, but I'm a neighbour who cares for the people I live amongst. If I am a good friend or a good neighbor, that means I'm there regularly and I'm there uh, reliably so that they know they can call on me and I can go visiting and accept them to be there. And, um, so it's reciprocal as well. Our neighborhood is mostly made of recyclers. So it's people who pick through the trash for a living and, and find whatever's useful. Most of them have no education, so the ability to even read and write. Uh, and so options as far as jobs go are pretty limited. Our neighbors get really um, low paying jobs like rickshaw drivers or cooking sweets. Whenever you are born into that situation, there's really not a lot of places to move up from that, which then just creates this cycle that um, people are kind of stuck in the slums and the poverty and not really many chances to get out. A billion people worldwide live in slums, and most have no safety net for when things go wrong. If things like medical expenses come up, those are typically emergencies and then just completely take all the money or they go into debt and go looking for who they can borrow from, so then you get this cycle of continual debt. When you have uneducated parents, then it's a struggle to keep your kids in school and get them on the right track to getting a better job that can create better family for themselves. What they hope for can be so distant that there's just no connection between how they get there. Girls especially, when I ask them about their dreams, they'll just stare at you blankly because they don't have, they were never even asked what their favorite food is before. God has a huge heart for the poor. And I think the way we respond is by following Jesus um, who went to the poor and spent time with them and lived amongst them. Following what he does might actually be the solution. I think you can only maybe change the way of life of the poor or a culture of where things are going wrong if you first really accept it and this takes a lot of time being there learning the language loving the people being in the culture and i think only then you can actually move in a different direction maybe the way forward is uh, helping them to deal with a landlord that's charging too much or helping in terms of labor rights or getting a you know, better salary or or how do I help my husband stop beating me? I can't assume that I know what the, what the way forward is for this person until I listen to them. We want to work together with the community that's around us to say, okay, what are the needs here? And what are the resources? And, and how can we work together to deal with that? If someone can change what they believe about themselves, even if it's from life is hopeless to there is some hope, uh, that change tends to happen through relationships. To be able to get involved in people's lives and say, you are valuable and that's, that's why I've moved here. Of course I would want to move to a place like this. Instead of thinking that we, we have the mission to bring Christ 
to these poor urban areas, we try to look for him there. So by going there, we are in hope of finding Christ and being able to continue the work that he's already started there in the urban communities. wants to say before we um, go and have another cup of chai. <laughs> no? Okay, so we just want to say thanks very much. It's been a fun afternoon and uh, we've enjoyed it and I hope, uh, hope you have fun. Thanks for all of the delaying. We really, um, yeah, it's amazing work that you guys are doing and thank you for sharing it with us. Um, I did just check whether it was okay to pay for you guys, especially discernment around some of the visa stuff and... Um, Matthew, you want to give a bit of a description? We came back in 2014 thinking we were going to have a sabbatical for a year, but then last year when we applied for our visas, the Indian government representative in Canberra told us that we should stay here now, we're not needed over there anymore. Um, so we've decided to stay here for this year and then we'll decide later this year whether we have another go and apply again because, uh, yeah, we kind of like to go back. But... Anyway, it's a, it's a big mixed up decision, but uh, it would be good to have wisdom on that and visas if that's what we decide for. I'll just take quickly for Loving God, um, we pray for your wisdom, your discernment. Uh, we pray that you would be um, quite clear and um, just drawing really close to the family right now as they, as they seek what your will is in this. Um, God, we pray that once that's known, that you would make a very uh, easy and clear pathway and way forward for them, um, that doors would be open where they need to be. Um, God, we thank you for the work of servants. We thank you that they continue to serve um, the urban poor around the world. And, and, um, and yeah, we just pray that you would continue to help us uh, be more loving in, um, in ways that is experienced as loving for the things that we're seeking to serve. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. This was one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 16. We hope you found this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. Please check in with us at surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to engage and connect with our wider movement.